Welcome back to Biblical Book Review. I'm Kevin. I'm Alec. And I'm George. We are so happy you are joining us for today's study. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 8 with the section of the mission. This week, we start chapter 9. How many sections are in chapter 9, George? Well, A.B. Bruce has divided uh, chapter 9 into four separate sections. And I love how he does this in uh, looking at John chapter 6, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the storm on the the Sea of Galilee, the sermon that uh, comes after that storm when they reach the other side. And then the, the ultimate goal of all of this is what A.B. Bruce describes as the subsequent sifting of Christ's disciples. And so those four uh, sections are, are divided here into chapter 9, and we'll begin with section 1, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And this is the, the first miracle that if you grew up in the church, you were taught in Sunday school. They didn't want to teach you Jesus' first miracle, which was water to wine. They said, no, you could be a little boy, bring in fish and bread to Jesus, and he'll make it into something great. That's correct. And what a what a wonderful uh, way to show Jesus' compassion. Uh, and as A.B. Bruce kind of mentions in as he begins this chapter, he says, you know, there really wasn't a real definite need uh, for feeding these people, uh, they weren't they weren't far from home. They weren't far from communities that had food. They had just left that morning, and it was just now afternoon, and so they weren't, you know, hours and hours away from from civilization. Uh, the next time when he feeds four thousand, it's a different, completely different scenario where uh, they had been following him, listening to him for, for three days straight without any uh, break, without any food. And now uh, in that, that time with the feeding of the 4,000, he, he sees and, and uses that compassion to feed them because they needed it. But here it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have a particular need that is really evident. But as A.B. Bruce kind of starts to give details into this feeding of the 5,000, he believes there is there is some definite need for this particular miracle, and we'll get into that as as the chapter unfolds. Yeah, when you think about five thousand people, we're throwing around these numbers five thousand, four thousand. It's like that's a lot of people, and it was five thousand men. So that doesn't even account for the entire amount of people. I looked it up, tried to find something close that we could all relate to. Red Rocks Amphitheater can hold about ten thousand people. And so if you had half of those were men, you'd think that the other half would be women and children. So look at how many, like red rocks, feeding red rocks with fish and bread. It just it blows your mind when you actually like put it to a scalable, like what you can think of instead of just saying, oh yeah, 5,000, 4,000. Yeah, it's a, it's a large amount of people. Uh, and when scripture talks about, you know, the crowds of people that Jesus drew and, you know, pressing up against him and just the mass of people. Uh, and sometimes we, you know, or I do, I picture it in my mind, uh, Jesus in the wilderness, you know, and he's got, you know, a handful of people around him. It's like, no, this is, this is a movement. This is a lot of people. <laughs> As A.B. Bruce describes it, they flocked along the shore because they knew that Jesus and his followers were there. And in, Jesus had called them away to sort of give them a little break. He said, we need to get away from all these people. And so he took them to the Sea of Galilee, and yet everyone knew 
uh, where they were. And so they, they came from everywhere. And they, like Alec was saying, they just would just flock around him and just, you know, it was like you, there's no breathing room. And so we're talking about a lot of people. And Jesus is starting to see that there's, there's a particular need for this particular miracle. And he's going to give this lesson uh, about, uh, you know, obviously John uses it to kind of introduce his idea of the bread of life. Jesus being the bread of life, but Jesus has some other things in his mind. He says, you know, there's a lot of people here, and we need to figure out who's really with me and who's not really with me. And so I believe A.B. Bruce kind of gives that, uh, that purpose for this particular miracle and the, the idea that Jesus wants to be able to sift through and figure out who really does want to follow me with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. Yeah, it's almost like the miracle uh, in and of itself wasn't just, you know, for, for feeding of these individuals. It was mainly for his apostles uh, and to test them, to have them understand uh, something a little bit deeper about Jesus and who he was and who his, uh, what his purpose was, not necessarily just the, the physical needs of this large mass of people. Yeah, because he sent them away too after it was over. One thing I that stuck out to me this time reading through these you know passages in the, the scripture was they actually discussed it amongst themselves. They, they you could see that they had some deliberation about what should we do. Well, we have this amount of money; we could go buy loaves, or I mean, we could just send them away and say, "Hey, go home." And then they had after making up that mind, their minds, they went to Jesus and said, "So, what do you think?" Well, I think we could take that into today's world and be like, "Well, if I have a problem." I can think about it and I can be like, well, I could do this. Well, I can do that. And I can start to make it the plan in my heart. And then I go to Jesus and say, well, what should I do? That's an excellent uh, illustration there, Kev. And so this uh, hero worship where Jesus is being mobbed basically by uh, these followers that are just, they really, they want to see another sign. They want to hear some more teaching. And they're just, they're enthralled with this individual, this one odd rabbi that's kind of, bringing the masses all out of the woodwork. And Jesus is going to use this enthusiasm. And he's going to give us, give his disciples here a test. And I, I love the idea of, of this pass fail test. He, John even mentions that in kind of in a parenthetical statement there in John chapter six, he says, and Jesus did this. He asked his disciples, what was their opinion in order to test them? And they failed. <laughs> it was one of those pass-fail tests, and Jesus says, no, that, that's not why. That's not how we're going to do it. That's, I've already decided this is how it's going to happen, but I just wanted to hear your, your point of view. And Jesus does that with us sometimes. He'll give us a pass-fail test, and there's, there's an opportunity for us to step up, and like Kevin was saying, we can, in our minds, kind of weigh options and kind of figure some things out for ourselves, and then, then we take it to the Lord and we realize, you know what, we, we haven't even thought of this correctly. And there are times when we have to understand that Jesus is testing us and whether or not we are truly uh, followers of him. And so in this case, he says, okay, what should we do? And one of them, the, the CFO of the group, he says, the financial officer, he says, well, uh, 200 denarii wouldn't uh, really touch it. And he's doing the math. He's looking at all the people, and he's kind of trying to figure it out in his head. And that's that's almost two thirds or three fourths of a year's wage uh, in that era. And just 
whatever you make in a year, just imagine 75% of that, you know, or 66% of that or whatever it is. I mean, that's a massive number uh, when they came up with that 200 denarii. And that's, you know, a, a denarii was what they would pay a daily wage. And so one of them says, well, let's, let's figure this out mathematically. And the other one says, well, what if we just send them out? Why don't we just let them take care of themselves? And Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. What do you got? <laughs> and of course, Andrew brings the fish and the loaves and the miracle ensues. And this is really how Jesus is going to give this pass-fail test, uh, not only to his disciples, but to all the crowd. And we're going to see how they respond. Something I found interesting about this part of the miracle is in Luke's account, he says they broke them up into about 50 people and then they fed them. Well, I don't think personally that this was so they could count the masses. I don't think Jesus needed to have credibility of how many people he fed. I believe that he split them up into these groups because when you get down into 50 people, you can actually have communications with each other. You can actually start to relate to each other. And they're broken into these little groups so they can kind of get to know each other instead of having this huge mass of 5,000 people and how unorganized that is. I believe we could take this into today's church when we look at the size of our congregations. We don't want to get so big that it's just this huge mass of people and you don't really get to know people. We need to keep it in these small groups to where we can engage, get to know people, and to be involved. And we've all had that experience where we've gone to these, uh, what is termed in our in our era, the mega churches. And you just feel, I don't know, I've, I've been uh, with uh, friends and relatives and I've gone to these places. And even as I left, uh, the occasion, I would ask whoever I went with, I said, well, do you know anybody here? I mean, it was really this great big theater and it's like this great big show going on. I said, do you have any interaction with any of these people? And uh, his response uh, was no, <laughs> I don't. And we kind of walked in like you would into a, you know, Cinemark theater uh, and left, you know, and there's other people there, but you don't, you don't know them. They don't know you. And there's nothing about that. And so I believe when Luke describes this uh, segregation of 50s and 100s, uh, those are manageable numbers. And so you can kind of see the, the, uh, uh, the mindset of Jesus and his organizational qualities. He says, get them in groups that are manageable. And I believe he does that with us uh, in the Lord's body today as well because manageable groups and the autonomous nature of the church uh, it's so much uh, simpler for us to do things and to uh, fulfill God's purpose as the body of Christ when we're not in such a massive quantity of people with, you know, with so many things, so many moving parts that nothing really gets done. Yeah, and the accountability is there as well. Uh, you've got this um, uh, anonymity uh, there in the larger congregations where you can just uh, I'm just here <laughs> and you know, no one knows that I'm here and, but I know that I'm here and I've checked that box for this week and I've, uh, you know, I can, I can hide in the corner and it doesn't matter, but you know, the smaller and smaller you get that more account accountability, that more responsibility, all that stuff kind of becomes more evident. Uh, and you really have to, um, take ownership of your faith and how you, um, how you perform, uh, in, the congregation. What is your role? What, what, who are you? And you're not just this, 
you know, we, we have the terminology pew warmer, <laughs> that idea of you're just in, you're, you warm the pew and you're out and no one even knew you were there or you were there or, or anything. I mean, it, it's it, these larger congregations. Now, it's not to say that that can't be done. It's not to say that we can't have large congregations, uh, but we just have to be really aware of uh, the role that they were playing there and, and understand that there is a reason for a lot of the things that are happening in Scripture, and I believe you're, you're right, Kevin, when uh, Jesus splits them into these smaller groups, and we're not just looking at a, a mass of people. It's delegated, smaller groups. Each in, individual apostle probably has, had a group that they were uh, responsible for. I mean, there's all these different things, and we're told about you know the 12 baskets of extra leftovers that are um, afterwards and all these different things that the, the apostles then had to carry around <laughs> for a while. There's a lesson in, in all of this, uh, but I believe this kind of delegation with a smaller uh, group of uh, people that can hold you accountable uh, for your spiritual walk, I believe there's a lesson in, in that in this feeding of the 5,000 as well. Next, yeah, I doubt the apostles went to every person and handed them a piece of bread and fish, right? Those groups were broken up, and then they probably into sections of groups, and then it was just disseminated down from there. It's like, here, I'll bring this to you. You hand, you just pass it along. Take one and pass it along, like when we sing a song outside of the, the book. <laughs> take, a, take a pamphlet and pass it along. <laughs> but the idea is, is valid where just imagine the fish just multiplying in the basket or the bread and we're i mean we're talking about a lot of people and you know you think about your thanksgiving dinner you think about your you know big family get-togethers we had a big christmas thing a few years ago and you know there's 20 or 30 of us in a in a lodge or whatever and it's like that's a lot of people well imagine 5000 people and jesus says have them sit down and watch this and he lifts his hands to the father he prays to the father and People are fed. And so the question then is, all right, what's the motive? You know, what is, what is driving Jesus to this uh, particular occasion? Why is he wanting to do this? And I believe A.B. Bruce kind of nails it down, kind of puts it down in, into two chunks. He says on page 124, he says, his, I'm going to do this with this liberal hand is how A.B. Bruce says it. I'm going to give these blessings. I'm going to put, pass out this miracle liberally. Everyone will be filled. And Jesus does that uh, with us. He says, you will be filled. You seek me. You will find me. And you're looking for that, that void in your life. I will fill that void in your life. And he dispensed these miracle blessings with this liberal hand. And secondly, A.B. Bruce says, it was meant to teach and also to test. And this sermon, uh, he's, he's looking at all this enthusiasm, all this exuberance, all this, this hero worship, as it were, uh, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this litmus test to work, and I'm going to see who really is and who really isn't one of my followers. And so the spiritual, they're going to see this as a sign of of Christ saving grace. That's that's how it's put there. It's like this is a sign and spiritually minded individuals, those individuals in that crowd, there were some who were spiritual and there were also some who were physical and they would say, "Man, I'm I'm full. You know, I've 
that was good fish. That was that was excellent bread, and in just you know, and that's all they cared about. And so there was the spiritual, there was the physical, and Jesus says, "I've got to be able to turn this event into some sort of litmus test to teach and to test." And so he dispensed this blessing with a liberal hand, and it's a teaching and testing moment. Yeah, and I like the way that uh, Avery Bruce kind of talks about this. You know, Jesus thinking to himself, "Is this is this an occasion good enough for my use of divine powers?" Like, no, this this is not what Jesus is going through his mind. He's going to use uh, his divine power to to teach and to test uh, his disciples, his followers. And he asks, he he says here, he did not ask. Uh, here on the top of um, uh, page 124, he says, He did not ask himself, Is this a grave enough occasion for the use of divine power? Is this man ill enough to justify a miraculous interference with the laws of nature by healing him? Are these people here assembled hungry enough to be fed, like their fathers in the wilderness, with bread from heaven? But we do not insist on this because we believe that something else, a higher, was aimed at the miracle than to satisfy the physical appetite. It was a symbolic, didactic, critical miracle. It was meant to teach and also to test, to supply a text for the subsequent sermon and a touchstone to try to try the character of those who had followed Jesus with such enthusiasm. The miraculous feast in the wilderness was meant to say to the multitude just what our sacramental feast says to us, I, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, am the bread of life. What this bread is to your bodies, I myself am to your souls. <laughs> and so this, the spiritual need of the people is going to be satisfied for those that are spiritually minded. And those that are physically minded, and as uh, A.B. Bruce mentions the word carnal, uh, they're, they're just enjoying a free meal. And Jesus looks at this and he says, all right, if I don't kind of get this test in place, there's going to be this misunderstanding of my ministry, this misunderstanding of my kingdom, because they're going to think that it's all physical. And in fact, they do think that. They say, let's make him our king. They're, they're going to do it by force, they think. They think they're going to make Jesus king, and they're, they're going to, it's going to take care of all their physical problems. And Jesus says, I've got to make sure they understand exactly what my kingdom is about. And so this reason, this miraculous event, he says, I, I have a different idea of my mission here on earth than everyone else, even his closest disciples, those 12 men that he chose, they still didn't get it. And in fact, they don't get it for the next three and a half years. They're, they're following Jesus and they just don't quite understand it. But Jesus keeps testing and teaching and testing and teaching and finally, he kind of weeds out those that are just there for the ride, for the free ride. And he says, now I'm getting down to my true disciples. Yeah, and we've got, you know, this, the, when we look at miracles in the scripture, and especially when Jesus was performing the miracles to those there, we have to ask the question, what is the purpose of the miracle? What, why is Jesus doing this? And the purpose of the miracle has never been for the sake of the miracle itself. It's not just because Jesus wanted to feed them or Jesus wanted to heal them or all these different things. The miracle always points to something. Uh, and in this case, it's pointing to, you know, his words, his, his kingdom is, is spiritual in nature and it's pointing to something better than the physical. And 
unfortunately, there was a lot, like we're talking about here, a lot in this mass of people that still didn't understand this. They didn't understand the miracle was pointing to something spiritual and better, and they were still focusing on the physical aspect of the miracle. Now, the physical aspect of the miracle was still miraculous. It was still awesome. (laughs) It was still something that was never before seen or ever since, this idea of feeding this mass amount of people with such a small amount of food, uh, but it wasn't the miracle for the miracle's sake. And that's Jesus' point here is that the miracle is pointing to something else. It's pointing to something better than this, and we can't get caught in the weeds of the miraculous event in and of itself. And unfortunately, we get we have a lot of uh, people today even that try to focus so much on the miracle aspects of it and say, well, this is the, the miracle is the best part of all of this. It's like, well, the miracle is really cool and really awesome and really impressive, and it proves something about who Jesus was and is, but it's not the miracle in and of itself that was the important part. It's the message that it points to. That's the important part, and that's what we can't lose when we're studying miracles in Scripture. I think, <clears throat> I think one of those lessons that we can take from it today when we look at our congregations, are we just drawing people in? Are they staying with us because we have programs, because we have all these different things in place that are attractive? You talked about the mega churches and how it's like walking into a theater. Is that why people are coming to your congregation, or are they coming to worship God? Are they coming to have the, the creature comforts met, or are they coming to worship God? We don't need to worry about the number that we have necessarily, more about the number of holy people we have in our congregations more than just, oh, I have this many people, so we must be doing well. Well, no, it's about how many people are there to worship God and are going to be there whether you have any program at all. Yeah, that, you know, we have the three aspects, you know, three different types of worship described in Scripture. We have uh, ignorant worship described, you know, and we have vain worship described, and then we have worship that's in truth and in spirit. And we need to make sure that we are focused on our worship in truth and in spirit. We're not just worshiping in vain, just going through the motions, and we're not ignorantly worshiping. We're just worshiping because we have no idea what we're doing, but we need to have that spirit of truth and worship him and be that, that be the focus of our, of our spiritual walk. And I love how A.B. Bruce brings up uh, John's just kind of a, a parenthetical statement there in verse 4 of John chapter 6. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And because John does mention Passovers, and we see that this is the third uh, mention in John's uh, uh, gospel, we know that Jesus' ministry lasted some three, three and a half years because each year they would celebrate the Passover. And this is, this is the third mention of, of the Passover that Jesus is involved in. But why is, why is that important to John? Why would John put that in? Why would the Holy Spirit move John to put that little verse in there? And I believe A.B. Bruce kind of describes this or explains this because Jesus knows as he looks just a few just really just a few months really away down the down the road in the future he realizes that he will become this passover lamb he'll become this perfect sacrifice and he's preparing his mind for that eventuality and he's also attempting to sort of give this warning to his followers his closest followers and so this uh 
just this little mention here in, in one verse. It was right here. Here's the Passover. It's approaching. Well, Jesus is thinking, that's my goal. This is where I'm headed. And so this miracle is kind of leading toward that eventuality. And Jesus wants us to realize just how important that is. He being the perfect sacrifice. And so this miracle of fish and loaves, and now John's uh, description of his sermon that follows with, you know, I'm the bread of life. He says all of this leads directly to that one day when he's crucified there for the sins of the world. Yeah, Jesus used people's human nature to bring him to himself so he could teach them about eternal things. And I, I look at this chapter and I think about, well, myself in the future training to become an elder I need to be able to be benevolent and help people, right? We need to freely give, but we need to have a point where we realize they're only here for the human side of it, and they're not getting the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, and that's what they should actually be seeking. They're just seeking material things. And so I think this really helps you with that as you look forward, or if you are in that position now, and benevolence is like, yeah, we freely give to people in the beginning, but then we had to say, there's a certain point where we withdraw and say, you're not getting the point. You're just here for the material side of this. And it's it's more than that. Jesus is the bread of life. This is what you need to seek. And if they don't seek that, what does Jesus do? He sends them away. Yeah, Jesus even goes into hiding himself. He, he, he takes himself away from the situation. And I like the way that A.B. Bruce kind of uh, says this here on the bottom of page 127. He says, What a melancholy result of a hopeful movement that we have here. The kingdom has been proclaimed, and the good news has been extensively welcomed. Jesus, the messianic king, has become the object of the most ardent devotion to any enthusiastic population. But alas, their ideas of kingdom are radically mistaken. Acted out, they would mean rebellion and ultimate ruin. Therefore, it is necessary that Jesus should save himself from his own friends and hide himself from his own followers. How certainly do Satan's tares get sown among God's wheat? How easily does enthusiasm run into folly and to mischief? You can have all the good intentions to be doing the right things, like, well, we, we can do this, and we can do this, and we can do this, and we can bring in more and more and more and more. But if all of our focus is on the physical and we miss the spiritual aspect of the kingdom, it's, it's folly, it's ruin, and all this enthusiasm is wasted. And Jesus' example here is he, he even goes, he secludes himself. He pulls himself out of the situation entirely. And it's no longer about him at all. It's about, well, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And it's like, well, your focus now is more on what you are doing as opposed to how God uh, is being exalted and glorified in any type of movement. And this was no surprise to Jesus. It was what he expected. He had realized this, and because he understood the nature of mankind, he's created us, and of course he knows us uh, more than we even know ourselves. He knew exactly the hearts of all those individuals, those 5,000 men and their, their wives and their children, whoever, however many people are there, he knows exactly. And so he uses this miracle to sort of begin the idea of sifting the true from the false, from those who are just in this for something free 
and for those that are wanting and willing to do whatever it takes to follow him. And so this miracle and feeding of the 5,000, it's impressive. It's not what we should focus on is what it's pointing to, as Alec mentioned before. It's like it's pointing to something bigger than really the physical you know, needs of fulfilling their hunger. Okay, that's, that's impressive, but what's it pointing to? Well, it's that pass-fail test. He did this to test, and the disciples are going to pick up 12 baskets of leftovers, and each person, each one of those 12 is going to carry a basket, and I don't know how long, I don't know how big the baskets were. They were carryable, but for a week, they'd look down that basket, and they go, oh, that's right, <laughs> and you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's impressive. And each time they're being taught, each time they're being tested, and Jesus says, I know who is truly my follower, and I want you to be my true follower. Yeah, and this, I find it, you know, providential, I guess. It comes right after they get sent out on this mission where he tells them, care not and fear not. And we have this perfect example of, the care not aspect of following Jesus. It's if we're worried about our physical state, we're worried about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to sleep, all these different things that we care about as physical beings, Jesus demonstrates here with this miracle, just it's irrelevant. Care not. I mean, look at the sparrows, look at the look at the flowers, look at, look at everything around you. God cares about you more than those. Focus on kingdom work, focus on the spiritual and the physical aspect of it, God will take care of you. Um, God, it's going to happen. And whether or not you're going to be uh, filthy, stinking rich, <laughs> that's irrelevant. Uh, and if you are, great. <laughs> use your use your uh, gifts, your talents, your your funds for for His service. But this this physical aspect of it is not the focus. It needs to be the spiritual aspect and those physical things, as demonstrated here, they'll be taken care of because God cares about you and your your well-being. Uh, and if you are truly seeking and serving him, the rest of that stuff, if you have the faith, it's, it's going to be taken care of. God's going to take care of you. And if you believe it, live like it. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how it's just, it's 12 baskets, right? 12 yeah. apostles, 12 <laughs> baskets. Weird, right? How that happened. And I really do believe that points to the fact that if you are a true follower of Christ, if you are one of his disciples— you're going to have to carry some of the load. You're going to have to do the work. He didn't just end up with 10 baskets and then give two guys a break. Well, no, they all had to do something. They all had to carry a basket. They all had to do work. And the way A.B. Bruce kind of sums up the, the section about this amazing miracle, he wants each of us to do a self-examination and look inside and say, okay, why am I a Christian? Is there a particular reason? Is it just because of, of some reputation or some compliance to some tradition? Or is it because I was brought up that way or my parents, you know, forced me to go to Bible class and worship? And why, why am I a Christian? Why do I profess Christianity? Is it from sincere faith that Jesus is who we claim to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Or is it other, some worldly advantage? And so that's this pass-fail test. When we look at these miracles, we look at this one particularly, 
we have to examine ourselves and say, am I really following Christ for the right reason? Or is, it, is there some advantage, worldly, some physical advantage? Is it because I have this wonderful reputation? Is it because I'm, I'm looked upon, you know, the, the big men and women in the brotherhood, you know, those, those powerhouse speakers and those, those authors? And is, it, that's the, is that the reason I'm a Christian? Or is it true, sincere faith? And so we, we must look in on ourselves. And answer that question because of this miracle. We leave you with these questions. Why do you follow Christ? Is it because of some tradition? Does it enhance your reputation? Does it give you a worldly advantage? Have you come to a place in your life where you will follow Jesus no matter what the cost? Do you follow him for who he is or for what he can do for you? Thank you so much for joining us for this week's study.